My name is Sean Carter, and you're listening to the Ethie Awards podcast. We've got another wonderful episode for you, filled with more nominees for the best of the worst of legal ethics. By way of disclaimer, if at any point during the program you hear ambient noise in the background, it sounds like maybe, say, a 747 is in my office, it's because it is. Our studios are right on the edge of a local regional airport, and normally that's not a problem. Four planes fly out of this airport a year. But for some reason today, it seems like they have the Blue Angels here. Or maybe it's Charlie's Angels, um, Blue Man Group, I don't know. It's a lot of stuff going on. And I've tried to record this like 18 times without having any background noise. And then I realized you could just learn to live with it. So anyway, that being said, let's get right to the program. And we're going to get started right where we left off last week. The category is Prosecutorial Misconduct. The nominee is a movie entitled Where the Truth Lies, and that title, Where the Truth Lies, is perfect for this particular case, which all started 1 a.m. some night in September of 2016. And by the way, did I mention it happened in New Jersey? 1 a.m. is going to be good. So, So what happens is, and there are two conflicting stories here, of course, we don't know exactly where the truth lies. But according to one version of the story, it's 1 a.m. Ray here is out with his wife on the front porch at 1 a.m. And a neighbor begins blasting his car horn. Ray says that he gives a very neighborly gesture. Like, yeah, you know, tone it down. It's 1 a.m. People trying to sleep here. And according to Ray, the driver, Gabriel, gets out of his car with a box cutter in hand and slashes Ray in the face. Now, that's his side of the story. The other side of the story comes from the defendant here, Gabriel. And he says it didn't exactly go down like that. Gabriel's story is that he gets to his mother's house about 1 a.m. that morning, honks the horn three times. I'm not sure why. And then here comes Ray up to his car, banging on the car hood. When Gabriel gets out of the car, said, what's going on here? He notices that Ray is armed with a beer bottle. And by the way, has two buddies with him who are also similarly armed. At that point, Gabriel does what I would have did and starts running. Unfortunately for Gabriel, he's not black. I would have got away. He does not get away. And he says, at that point, Ray punches him in the head and then hits him with a beer bottle. Out of desperation and defense, Gabriel reaches in his pocket for a box cutter that he uses for work. Now, Gabriel says that he doesn't slash at Ray but rather just tries to put up his hand in defense. And sure enough, Ray runs his face into the box cutter, and this is where all the trouble lies. Ray's wife calls the police. They come out, take a statement from Ray and his wife, and then go to arrest Gabriel on aggravated assault charges. But Gabriel's family's there, mom and everybody, and they're like, no, 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 that's not what happened at all. Gabriel was the victim here. He was the one who was attacked. And the police are not interested at all in hearing their side of the story. Interestingly enough, one of the family members was smart enough to videotape this. And so you have the family saying, no, 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 let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what happened. But the police are like, la, 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 la. I'm not listening to you, Gabriel. I don't want to hear it. La, la. And they tell them, look, you know what? You take it to court. You can testify then. We've got everything we need. They take Gabriel off to jail. He's arrested and tried. And at trial... Gabriel's family gets a chance to tell their side of the story. Now, remember, there's this videotape of them trying to tell their side of the story earlier, but that doesn't get admitted in evidence. 
the hearsay rule would say that you don't need that because you actually have the people there to testify about what happened. And so they should be the best evidence, cross-examination, etc. So for this purposes, the videotape of them that night is excluded from evidence. However, in closing arguments, what the prosecutor says is, yes, his family came here, but they showed up late. I don't mean late to trial that day, but they could have told at the scene what happened. But they didn't have anything to say then. They made this up all after the fact. Even though the prosecutor knew that there was a videotape of them trying to explain it that night because he had argued to keep that tape out of evidence. And sure enough, the jury believes the prosecutor's case and they convict Gabriel. He's sentenced to seven years in prison. He spent the last three and a half years there. But on appeal that just came down from the New Jersey Supreme Court this week, his conviction has been overturned. He gets a new trial. Why? Because of the prosecutorial misconduct of the prosecutor misleading the jury about the evidence, or at least misleading them and telling them that the family had just made up this story after the fact, and that they hadn't been saying from day one that Gabriel was innocent, even though he knew that. The bottom line is simply this, is that we have another example of a prosecutor who's willing to win at all costs. He knows what the truth is, but will tell the jury something that is counterfactual in an effort to win. It's almost as if this prosecutor didn't understand that a key part of the justice system is the fact that the prosecutor is unlike every other lawyer. Most lawyers are only charged with getting the best result for their client. Justice be darned. But not the prosecutor. He's actually supposed to achieve justice in the abstract to make sure that the guilty go to jail but that the innocent are freed because his client is not just the state or even poor Ray Ray here. It's also Gabriel. He represents Gabriel's interest too. And when you lie to the jury and tell them something that you know not to be true, it's not going to work out well for you. I don't know how he thought that this conviction wasn't going to be overturned. Now, he has not been charged by the bar yet. And it's New Jersey, so he's got about an 80% chance of getting away with it because they're lax on the discipline there. Um, but if he were in the state of Cardaonia, uh, he would be driving Uber because he knew he was telling a lie and decided to tell it anyway because winning was all that mattered for someone who's supposed to be serving the interest of justice. Well, it's a lowdown, lowdown, dirty shame. Yes, it's a lowdown, lowdown, dirty shame. They say we're fighting Hitler, but they won't let us in the game, Lord. Our next nominee is in the category of the Pit Bull Award. And as you remember, these are lawyers who simply can't let go. Once they bite into a case, they just cannot ever let it go. The nominee here is the movie The Jerk. Okay. It was never easy for me. I was born a poor black child. I remember the days sitting on the porch with my family, singing and dancing down in Mississippi. And here we have an Indiana lawyer. I don't know if he was born a poor black child, but I do know he grew up to be sort of a jerk and literally was charged with being a jerk. Or more specifically, he was charged with violating his oath 
And the oath in Indiana says specifically, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Indiana, yada, 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 yada. And then says, I will abstain from offensive personality and advance no fact prejudicial to the honor or reputation of a party or witness unless required by justice of the cause with which I am charged. I have to confess, I've been doing this for a while now, people. I'm not going to tell you how long because I don't want people to know how old I am. All right, but I've been doing this about 468 years. And somehow, I had never heard of anyone being charged with offensive personality. And I've met a lot of lawyers who've had an offensive personality. Actually, in fact, every lawyer from New York I've ever met has had an offensive personality. And you know who you are. But still, though, this was interesting, the fact that offensive personality was actually something you could be charged with. Now, what did the lawyer do that was so offensive? He was a prosecutor, the head prosecutor in this town, and one of his junior prosecutors was being investigated by the police. An inmate in the jail there, someone there on a meth conviction, said that this DA was, had been having sex with her for years and been trading sex for favorable sentences. And he'd been doing this with a lot of other female inmates. And as a result, the police investigated. They interviewed her and others, and this lawyer, who is not being implicated here, but the boss of the lawyer who is, was livid and furious. The prosecutor files a complaint against the officer with their local merit commission. That complaint is dismissed. They say there's nothing the officer did wrong. They simply investigated an actual complaint. And then the prosecutor decides he's gonna go over the head of the merit commission. What he's gonna do is he's going to write a letter to the chief of police. And here is what he writes in the letter. Quote, I have heard rumors that you have molested a child. I have no complaint nor any indication that the rumors are true. However, I intend to launch a full-scale investigation. I intend to question your family and friends and repeatedly comment that you are the subject of an official investigation for child molestation. The press may pick up on this, and certainly the people you work with every day will hear it. I doubt that they will ever again be able to look at you the same way. You will hear whispers among the people you work with. You will wonder how the news of the investigation will affect your children and your family. Then he writes, Obviously, I would never do such a thing. For a few seconds, you may have felt some of what I feel every day. My complaint has been that the police officer did even worse than this. They initiated a formal investigation for something that isn't criminal and for which no complaint had come forward. In the course of this investigation, they repeated to other officers, to the witness they interviewed, and others that there are rumors that my guy has traded set with criminal defendants. If that had happened to you, you would be furious. Your perspective would be entirely different had you been the target of such a thing. So in other words, he writes this letter, first trying to, I guess, jumpstart the guy's pacemaker and saying, hey, look, I'm going to charge you with these horrible crimes. And this is, oh, no, I'm not going to, but I just want you to feel what I would feel. And here's what the Indiana bar felt about it. They felt that the prosecutor here was being a jerk, that he had an offensive personality, so much so that they charged him with violation of his oath of office. They have a hearing. And the hearing officer rules for the lawyer, says, no, yeah, this is kind of jerky. And if he had actually filed a criminal investigation against the chief of police, had he gone any further with it, we would have definitely got on him. And we have several rules. 
But we're not going to get on him for this because he just was, was being a little overzealous. Now, eventually, the Indiana Supreme Court agreed with the lawyer and they dismissed the charges. So this lawyer won't spend any time in the penalty box. They can keep their job. But it cost him some time and money for being a jerk. The lesson here is very simple, to let it go. What was he going to gain from this? Once the investigation had taken place, was he going to get the police chief to turn back the hands of time? To uninvestigate it? The watchword here is simple. Don't cry over spilt meth. Our next nominee here is in the category of the Eager Beaver Award. Remember, we give this award to lawyers who jump the gun, start practicing before they're authorized or licensed to do so. This is actually a non-lawyer, someone who hasn't even gone to law school. But they end up being charged with the unauthorized practice of law, which is a criminal violation. And the way it happens is, is that the nominee here is the movie Good Deeds. Because here is someone who's trying to do a good deed for a friend. Friend comes to this attorney person, a person acting as an attorney, and says, hey, I need you to do me a favor. I got into an automobile accident. I don't know how to deal with these insurance companies. You know how to do this. Can you do me a favor? Get me a good settlement for my injury. And the friend says, yeah, I know how to deal with insurance companies. I, I, I got you. And so what he does is, is that he gets a power of attorney from the friend so that he can settle the case on his behalf and then works with the insurance company and sure enough gets him a settlement. And in return, the non-lawyer here gets 25% of the recovery. Now you're probably asking, why wouldn't the victim just do this the normal way? Hire a personal injury attorney, get the money that way. Well, the problem is, is that this victim has lots of attorneys, at least two others, and one of them is a bankruptcy attorney. He's in the process of filing bankruptcy, and he does not want any recovery he gets here to be included in his list of assets that would then be had to pay out to creditors. So he wants to sort of you know, keep his money on the down low, and this non-attorney friend of his can do so. Unfortunately, not really, because the bankruptcy court finds out, and then they report the friend to the Ohio authorities and say, hey, we got an unauthorized lawyer out here doing the law thing. The non-attorney is caught dead to rights, he ends up eventually getting a $5,000 fine imposed for the unauthorized practice of law. Couple of lessons here though, because this is an easy peasy case, but a couple of lessons. One is friends don't help friends defraud the court. And we have this happen quite a bit with lawyers. Lawyers who will just decide to, you know, be a good p -p pal, a buddy, particularly guys. We, we always fall for this. Bro code, right? Bros before ethos right? That type of thing. It never works well. We had a case a couple of years ago of a lawyer and his friend comes in and says, hey, my wife is divorcing me and this gold digger wants, you know, half of this practice she helped me build in the last 20 years of marriage. How, how dare she want half of the stuff she helped me build? And so he says, look, this is what I need you to do. I need you to pretend like my firm is your firm. You own the firm. I just work there in the copy room. And you know, bros. Just say, hey, I, I got to do this for you. We're bros. And so he starts lying and telling you know, the court, hey, this is my law firm. You know, he just works here. And then the authorities come because the friend is not just dishonest with his wife. He's also dishonest with the feds, tax evasion, that type of thing. And sure enough, this friend trying to do a good deed ends up lying to federal investigators which as you know is a felony, you don't want to do that. Not good for him, it's, it's a little jail time. 
Let me tell you what's even bigger than the bro code is the jail bar code. And you can get coded and imprinted if you lie to the federal authorities. The other thing is that friends might screw you in the end. We had a New Jersey case of a lawyer, same similar type of thing. He does not want his wife to get half of the money, and so he takes his liquid assets and gives them to a friend. And the friend decides that, you know what? Hey, free money for me. Takes the money to Atlantic City, drugs and hookers all weekend. The original friend eventually gets his divorce, says, hey, I want my money now. And the other guy's lawyer says, what are you talking about? I don't know about any money. I spent it. What you gonna do? Tell on me? <laughs> Amazingly enough, the other friend says, yeah, we're both going down for this. I'm gonna be broke, but we're both gonna be disbarred. And this is a problem. Once you enlist a friend in your criminal enterprise to defraud the court or whomever, they can double cross you. And there is not a lot of you gonna be able to do about it. I mean, I guess you can say, hey, I guess we're both gonna go to jail. We're both gonna lose our licenses. But generally speaking, you don't want to do that. And so maybe the best way to do it is just to, you know, pay what you owe. And speaking of which, we have gotten to our last case here. It's in the Hitchcock Award. This is for the surprise ending. And the movie is New Jack City. And it was chosen particularly for this scene. Yo, ready? Yo, man, we told him, man. Ready? Shit. You better be ready, homeboy. But you owe a whole lot of people, man. Yo, me, yo, yourself, yo, the whole community, man. You even on my mother. Yeah, that's right. Little junkie just like you. Killed my mother back in 1974. Didn't take no money, didn't take no jury. Just pow! Took her life, you know what I'm saying? Now, I don't know what you got left in your so-called rehabilitated little body here, whatever. But you better find something, because you owe a lot of people, man. You owe a lot of people. You owe poop. Here we have a Wisconsin lawyer, and he does court-appointed work. Like right? He represents indigent defendants for the state on a contract basis, and he has billed the state, in addition to for his fees, he's also billed them $2,400 for the fees of an investigator he had hired. And then he decides, when he gets the check, to not hand over the money to the investigator. Just stiffs the investigator for the $2,400. The investigator calls, writes, eventually calls the bar, calls the state, they eventually get it all worked out, but not until this lawyer has violated rule 1.15E. It reads in short, and I'll paraphrase it for you, upon receiving funds or other property in which a third party has an interest, i.e. the investigator, the lawyer shall promptly notify the investigator and promptly deliver to the investigator any funds they are entitled to receive. And promptly in this case was never, so he obviously had violated that rule. And for doing so, the lawyer got a 90-day suspension. Now, this is totally proper and right. But you can imagine, though, that in 90 days, this lawyer should have made more than $2,400. He's lost out here. And normally, you don't lose your right to earn a living because you don't pay your bills, thankfully. We're in a pandemic now. Lots of people aren't able to pay their bills. They're still able to go to work or at least keep their license. But there are some bills you have to pay. Now, for lawyers specifically, the bills they have to pay are the ones that they incur in the practice of law. You don't necessarily have to pay your visa and MasterCard, but you do have to pay the chiropractors you send your clients to, the court reporters, the copy services, the legal humorists that you hire to come out for your events, hypothetically speaking. 
This actually might explain why in well over 2,000 events, I've never been stiffed for a fee. Because if you do stiff me, uh, you're going to have to talk to the bar. You're going to give me my money. But that said, the reason here and why the bills you incur in the practice of law are considered different than the ones you might incur in the practice of marriage or life is because the idea is that if you don't pay your bills, you're going to be subverting justice somewhat. If all the court reporters and chiropractors and investigators are out of business or they got to stay up late, drive Uber because you don't pay them, then that makes it tough for everybody. So as a result, those bills have to be paid. And while this is a lawyer-specific obligation, I want to remind everyone of an obligation that is fixed no matter what your profession or if you have no profession, and that is the child support obligation. Every year we have lawyers who end up getting suspended because they didn't pay the child support. They get their law license suspended. In most states, by operation of law, all of your occupational licenses, even your driver's license, get suspended once you go three months, six months, or whatever over the limit of being late on your child support. And by the way, being in a pandemic or just not having the money is not going to excuse this obligation. You will still lose your law license and your driver's license. It'll make it hard to make money even driving Uber now, right? You're going to be in trouble. This is a bill that has to be paid first, even if you don't have the money. We had a case a couple years ago of a lawyer in Colorado who was literally homeless. He wasn't sleeping on the streets, but he was sleeping on various friends' couches, etc., doing odd day labor jobs. And still, he couldn't obviously meet his child support obligation that had been established when he was a big-time lawyer. And as a result, he gets his license suspended. He tries to argue, hey, I want to get a job and be able to pay this, but I got to keep my law license, but I just don't have the money. I don't even have a place to live. Look at me. I stink. And they were like, yeah, oh, you do. Oh, please. Oh, you, you do stink. But guess what? Uh, you need to stink over there with the people who pay their child support. Uh, maybe you need to, I don't know, get up, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Maybe set a little crack. Methods, I hear, is big here in Colorado. You need to do something. But until you get the money, you can't practice law. This is the case even, by the way, if your kids don't need the money. We had a similar case in Colorado involving a woman lawyer. She loses custody to her husband but has to pay child support. Okay. She had been working in the home for many years, decides to come out of the home, right? And she does have a law degree. She's going to now practice law. Husband's a big-time partner in a firm, making oodles and oodles of noodles and money. And the kids are eating lots of oodles and noodles and noodles. They're actually kind of chunky. They could lose some weight. They could miss a few meals, but not according to the court. The court says, I don't care how chunky the kids are, how many Xboxes, iPads, Bitcoin they own, um, you have to pay what is on the paper here. And until you pay what's on the paper here, you can't practice law, which will allow you to pay, to pay what's on the paper here. It becomes a horrible catch-22 situation, and it becomes the bill that you just cannot ever miss. And no matter what you have to do, you have to meet that obligation because if not, somebody's going to come to you and be like, hey, Pook, you owe Pook. And I don't know about you, but I don't want people to call me Pook. I'm 53 years old. I'm a grown man. Don't call me Pookie. And speaking of paying what you owe, you know what you can do. You can pay me by taking your butt to iTunes and putting up a great review. Lie if you have to. Matter of fact, lie first and then think about whether you have to. <laughs> I'm kidding, 38%. But anyway... See you next week, people. And finally, if you're a lawyer and you need your CLE, don't hesitate to get it from Mesa CLE. This is your comedic legal education, but it still counts as CLE. 
Mesa, M-E-S-A-C-L-E.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, please feel free to go to patreon.com. Either look us up at Mesa CLE or the Ethie Awards. And we thank you so much. See you next time.